Welcome everyone to the Polaris podcast. I am Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of the Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and we have on with us Jeff Powell. Jeff is our managing partner and our chief investment officer. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, doing excellent. So uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. It's something that uh, we're seeing a lot in the media. I'm certainly getting a lot of questions about it, and that is with regard to the Fed potentially tapering. And the questions are, first, what does that even mean? Why should we care about it? So do you mind giving us kind of the backdrop of what we're even talking about when we uh, mention the word taper? Well, it, tapering is a little bit more complex than just a, a simple explanation. I think that what would make a little bit more sense would be to take a couple steps back and really kind of talk about the, the Federal Reserve's role uh, within our economy. And namely, it's there to kind of balance. And it's got a very difficult job of balancing, either trying to stimulate our economy or trying to make sure that uh, we don't experience too high of inflation. And so, well, the, the, there are several le uh, levers that they can play around with. Um, the, the biggest one that you hear about is when the, the Federal Reserve is talking about raising rates or lowering rates. And what they mean by that is that's the amount uh, that they will lend to the banks. And then it becomes a domino effect because as the Fed lends money to the banks, the banks can then lend money to companies, uh, you know, private and public. They can also lend money to individuals. Uh, so the rate that the Fed uses is um, you know, one counterbalance. So they increase uh, rates in order to slow the economy down because if it costs more to loan money, um, then the cost to carry is higher and people will be less apt to use that lending for their own balance sheet and growth. Um, there's also a reserve requirement, uh, which the Federal Reserve can increase and decrease uh, to banks. Uh, again, they must hold a certain amount of money on hand in order to be able to, um, you know, basically be, be liquid if need be. Uh, so the more that they can lend out, the more they can make, but also uh, the more they can lend out, uh, more importantly. And uh, uh, then really the last is uh, the purchasing or selling of securities uh, by the government. And so that's really where tapering comes in. Uh, right now, uh, the terminology is, is uh, not being used as much today as it was back in the Great Recession, but when you're out buying bonds in the open market, it's called quantitative easing, uh, where they are, uh, again, uh, creating buying pressure uh, on bonds. When you create buying pressure, it forces prices up and yields down as a result of it. And then finally, what we were talking about today uh, is tapering. And when one talks about tapering, uh, it can mean the slowdown of the purchasing of bonds. So when right now, the, the big news of uh, and what's got everybody talking is the government is now talking about, hey, we're going to slow down the buying of bonds. So they're going to slow down the quantitative easing uh, and uh, allow the markets eventually uh, to go back to, to normal. Got it. So, Jeff, when we talk about the slowdown, I guess, can you walk us through how much is the uh, Fed currently purchasing? And then what does that taper potentially look like? And I know they haven't necessarily given us all their cards that they're going to play yet, but what can we expect with something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty staggering number with what's going on right now. I mean, and, and certainly significantly more than what we were seeing uh, during the Great Recession when there was no such thing as quantitative easing. That was uh, a word that, uh, uh, a new definitional word uh, that we've only been using for a little over a decade now. Um, the balance sheet, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, you know, pre-COVID was probably right around $4 trillion between mortgage-backed securities, agencies, treasuries, and so on. Uh, it's grown to almost $8 trillion. Uh, actually, just seeing that it uh, surpassed eight trillion uh, and a total um, 
valuation, which means that over the course of you know, the last 18 months, uh, we've seen a substantial increase, again, from about four to over eight, so a doubling of um, where you're seeing right now the Federal Reserve purchasing uh, about $80 billion a month uh, in treasuries and about $40 billion a month uh, in mortgage-backed securities. Got it. And so with the taper then, I, I, what I'm hearing you say and what I think is important to note is that we're not talking about stopping like cold turkey, but it sounds like we're going to slowly wean off. Is, is that a correct understanding? That's exactly right. Um, and so th these are the types of things that we've got to be very, very, very careful with. So uh, kind of going back in time, uh, we did a quantitative easing one. We did, so we had QE, we had QE2, we had QE3 back in the day. Um, and then uh, one of the reasons why this becomes a more important conversation is back in 2013, uh, there was a little bit of a panic when uh, all of a sudden people realized there was no announcement, but there was a uh, People realized that the Federal Reserve uh, was slowing down its purchasing of treasuries, and so then the question becomes: Okay, what's you know if that's going to happen, uh, then rates are going to spike, and with rates going up, then you've got again tougher lending, and so all that's really being talked about is the government right now is spending 100 over 120 billion a month buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and what they're talking about is slowing down that process, and eventually going to zero with both of these. It doesn't mean it happens overnight. doesn't mean that it's going to you know, have a uh, material negative impact. Again, so long as other people are out buying our treasuries and buying the mortgage-backed securities, there should be no issue. It simply just means that there is going to be less buying pressure than there was before. And again, the buying pressure is what's uh, propping prices up and keeping yields down. Again, most lending is based upon the 10-year treasury. So we want to be keeping a very close eye on what's going on with the tenure treasury to make sure that we have a, a clear understanding of what is going on uh, specifically within that uh, to understand the impact that that might have across the board on other uh, types of investing. Got it. And Jeff, do you mind walking through why does the Fed buying bonds, why does that stimulate the economy? What's happening there? Because that's not necessarily the most intuitive until people really understand like what's taking place in that transaction. Well, there's a few things uh, that are going on. I mean, uh, number one thing, and probably the easiest to explain, is just the physical uh, price of uh, of bonds. So, if the if the government's out buying bonds, uh, kind of the easiest way of saying it, if if you and I both want a bottle of water, and there's two bottles of water out there, great. You know, there should be no price differential. If a third person steps in and says they want a bottle of water. Now you've got more demand than you have supply, which drives the price up. Um, if you remember from previous conversations, we've talked about the inverse relationship between bond yields and bond prices. So as prices go up, yields go down uh, and vice versa. So the Federal Reserve going out and buying bonds is a way for them to, um, in a way, manipulate uh, what's going on with bond prices. Uh, they're impacting and going out and, um, and creating uh, or putting an extra person at our table wanting to buy a bottle of water uh, when they're not necessarily would have been one had it not been for the government. That's number one. Number two is it's putting liquidity back into the market. So you're basically uh, creating a situation where there's additional cash, uh, which then can be spent 
that wouldn't have been there otherwise had a government not stepped in and made these purchases. Got it. And that that's very helpful. And so uh, just to summarize from what I heard, so we're injecting liquidity in the market and then keeping interest rates low, which of course then makes uh, for looser spending uh, habits of households and businesses. Exactly. And I mean, and again, it makes lending that much uh, more feasible. So um, I go back and not to be too reminiscent, not to age myself, but uh, the first house I purchased uh, in the mid 90s, uh, my wife and I were able to get a mortgage at just under 8%. And we were ecstatic about it. Think about that for a moment. Uh, and think about you know the affordability of housing, for example, if you were going to go out and buy a house today, and the rates were at 8% versus the under 3% that we're dealing with right now. Um, so the additional money that I don't have to put into you know the lending uh, that I have taken out means that that's money that can be spent in a myriad of different ways. And that's part of the stimulus as well. So liquidity, you know, again, just hard cash that you've got sitting in your pocket that you wouldn't have had otherwise, but also that your ability to manage debt uh, it goes much further as a result of that. So it either means that I can go out and buy a more expensive house uh, and take a larger mortgage in order to have the same cash flow, or my cash flow has just gotten dramatically easier because I've held the same debt. Uh, and then my my money can either be going into spending in other ways or going into savings and investing. Got it. Well, since you've already uh, dated yourself a little bit with your uh, 8% loan, I'm going to uh, date both of us a little bit more and just talk about uh, in college, and we learned a lot about the tools that the Fed has, and yet quantitative easing wasn't really one that was discussed. It was kind of one of those, maybe in some weird scenario, um, it would happen, but really that's not the number one lever that the Fed uses. And yet here we are today, where on the back of 2008, and now today, that is the number one lever. Why is the Fed using this and not other, uh, I guess, stimulative type of uh, actions that they can take? Uh, it's a great question, Jeremy. Um, and it really has everything to do with where we stand today. So uh, as we talked about with the, the different levers, um, one of the main levers is raising or lowering interest rates. Um, uh, and again, these are overnight rates. It's called a Fed fund rate. Um, and they they normally keep them in these little windows. So it's typically a 25 basis point or a quarter of 1% uh, level of where they can you know, come in uh, at lending. And so this is their guidance. This is where they're willing to lend uh, to, again, uh, the banking system uh, with overnight lending rates. Rates are at 0% right now. Uh, unless we want to do as the Europeans are doing and do something that we've never done in our own country's history, which is to go to negative rates, there is not another lever. So at the moment, unless we uh, break this lever off and go into unchartered territory with regard to uh, moving to a negative interest rate, what we would be looking at here is a situation where uh, they've already expended the lever of uh, moving uh, up and down Fed funds rates. Again, as you talked about, lowering those rates is a stimulus. Raising those rates is a break to slow down the economy. So if you've got things where they're worried about inflation, they're worried about the economy growing too much, they start moving rates up. Uh, and right now, we're not seeing any chance of movement uh, based upon Fed futures for the rest of this year. It's looking extremely improbable that they will make a move uh, up with Fed funds rates uh, through the middle of next year. and 
The main reason behind it is that they're already, again, using a separate lever that needs to be kind of unwound, which is the quantitative easing that's happening. So they're not going to raise rates if they're also going out and buying bonds. The two are, are you know, the same thing. So there would be uh, doubling down uh, on it. And the remarkable thing that most people don't quite get is that having transparency to what's going on with our economy and the movements, uh, I mean, there's thousands, millions of moving pieces here. The Fed can't just move overnight. They want to sit there and move slowly and understand the cause and effect of their movement. So as they start pulling back the spending that they're doing right now, uh, that's where they're going to move first. And then afterwards, the Fed, uh, the Fed funds rates are, are possibly coming into play. Uh, but for right now, the reason why we're not really hearing about uh, rates and rate movements is because we are out there buying bonds. Um, eventually, we're going to probably, well, I should even say probably, we will see a selling of these bonds. We saw it happening in 2018 uh, and the negative impact that it had, because again, if you're selling bonds, so selling pressure pushes price down and pushes yields up. So people became very fearful uh, that the Fed was moving too quickly to unwind uh, bond positions that they had. And they were worried that with rates going up, that it would slow the economy too much and people feared a recession uh, that never came. If you go back and look at our write-ups of that, it's a good thing oftentimes when the Federal Reserve is doing this because it means the economy is on strong enough ground that they can actually do that. But for right now, we're on, you know, our, our economy is growing. It's growing very nicely, but it's growing because of stimulus in a lot of ways. So until we remove stimulus from the circumstances, which we just uh, signed off on it, trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill. So you know, we've got a, a lot of things that are, are uh, working towards the economy's favor with regard to throwing money at it, but we won't really understand what's going on with our economy uh, until we stop doing those types of things. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Um, that's extremely helpful in just understanding kind of the context. And then I think it would be helpful to just talk about, you know, when the Fed does start tapering, if interest rates do creep up, I mean, what does that mean for people? Uh, I guess from an investment standpoint, what are the kind of things that should do well? What are the kind of things that you want to avoid in that type of environment? Well, again, as we talk about uh, when the Fed starts tapering, uh, and there's lots of talk of it. I mean, a lot of the regional Fed presidents have been uh, definitely um, been more vocal about wanting to start the tapering process sooner than later. Uh, there's also a lot of talk of it not happening until you know first quarter, second quarter of next year. So we'll be we'll be monitoring it. Um, but as you lose that buying pressure, uh, so again, prices are being kept up, yields are being kept down. If we start to see and inching up of yields, it's simply a headwind in, uh, to a future growth is simply what it becomes. Now, how much of a headwind really kind of de determines uh, the, the potential fear factor of this. If done appropriately, uh, it can have very little effect uh, as you know, future demand uh, fills or backfills uh, what the government is not actually doing themselves. So we basically needed somebody else besides the U.S. government to be buying $120 billion a month. Uh, of these bonds in order to offset that kind of influence. Now, again, as you talked about, they're not going to get rid of that overnight. So they're not going to go from 80 billion in treasuries and 40 billion in, in mortgage-backed securities. They're not going to just stop that overnight. So maybe they cut back 10 billion of it. You know, do it in 
uh, smaller increments. It took the government a long time, well into 2014, after uh, announcing uh, when it finally came out that they were going to be tapering in 2013. So it took well over a year uh, for that to actually happen. And so with this, what we'll see is you know, a e either further demand for treasuries at their low rate. It's hard to believe that there would be a substantial amount of of demand, but it could be out there. And if that's the case, then we'll see uh, no movement in, in yields. If we see yields starting to normalize, uh, then we hopefully can get back to a scenario where, again, it adds to the, the future levers in which the government's being able to kind of play around with Fed funds rates and other things. Where it should impact, well, it's going to definitely have a negative impact on bonds. Uh, the longer out the duration, so again, one of the ways I love to describe it is that the bond market, uh, the price and yield uh, inverted relationship is kind of like a seesaw. So the further out you go on the seesaw, uh, the more the price is going to move uh, with the yield movements. And so when you see yields going up and you've got prices dropping, the further out you are on the seesaw, the more volatility you're going to see. Uh, and uh, in English, just meaning you're going to see way bigger price movements as a result of these types of movements. So you really want to be very careful uh, with the types of bonds you have. Uh, within the stock market, the, the biggest things that you really want to be looking at is the health of one's balance sheet. Uh, companies uh, that have a lot of debt and a lot of short-term recurring debt, having higher rates is going to eat into their margins. Uh, the other thing we want to be looking at is the resilience and the ability of a company to be able to pass on uh, the increased expenses onto their clients. So you either have a company that's doing you know, worse because it's cut their margins or they keep their margins the same and pass on this additional expense onto uh, the end user, which is often uh, what ends up happening. So with that kind of balancing act, we need to understand that because you're either gonna have lower stock prices uh, in those companies that don't have that ability, or if they are passing on the additional expenses, then you're talking about inflation. So it's, uh, again, a, a potential of, of cutting from one's own ability to spend uh, or having that, that item that you're buying costing more money. So all of these things, it's, I apologize that it's not a super simple answer to, to, uh, to give, but uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. But it's, uh, but it's things that we're looking at on a daily basis to understand and, and keep prepared for where we want to move uh, if we do start to see the tapering uh, and when we do eventually see uh, Fed funds rates rising because they will both have the same impact. Yeah, Jeff, no, thank you so much. And uh, for our audience out there, I would say, I mean, if you do find this stuff confusing, um, it's because it's complicated. And if you would uh, like, we would be more than happy to give you a complimentary portfolio review just to see how you're positioned, uh, see if there are changes that are warranted given some of the changes in our uh, economic and monetary policies going forward. And of course, Jeff or myself would be happy to do that, or any uh, wealth advisor or sales director at Polaris is more than uh, capable of uh, pulling that together and showing you what we would do different and perhaps what we could do to uh, better your chances of being successful given the uh, change in lands uh, landscape ahead. As always, Jeff, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Really appreciate uh, your comments on uh, what tapering means and, and what the impact will be. My pleasure. So and to uh, all of our uh, listeners today, thank you so much for spending your time with us. And as always, be happy, be safe, and be healthy. 
Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.